Hello, and welcome to the Code Youngstown podcast. My name is Neil Primer, and joining me today is Chris Harwell. Hi. Along with Joe Dunko. Hey. And our guest today is Michael Walker. Michael, could you take a moment to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, um, I'm a Native Valley resident, so six or seven generation. I forget offhand which one, but uh, so I've grew up in Boardman, uh, went to Boardman High School, graduated from YSU. I went to Vanderbilt for my master's in computer science. Uh, I'm a software developer. Um, I also teach at YSU uh, undergraduate courses, uh, big software development enthusiast, basically. So, you know, you kind of gave us a little bit of intro to your history in the Mahoning Valley. Uh, have you ever left the Mahoning Valley, moved elsewhere, come back? Uh, I lived in Berkeley for a summer. I went to an REU research experience for undergraduates, uh, studied at Berkeley um, University of UC Berkeley at, uh, for a summer doing research there. And then I went and did the same thing, uh, at, in Nashville at Vanderbilt university and went and eventually got, uh, my master's and pursued my PhD in computer science at Vanderbilt, um, in Nashville was there for, I think seven years uh, ended up what they call exiting gracefully. Um, COVID happened and whatnot. So came back, uh, helped take care of family, that type of thing, and uh, transitioned from academia to industry. What is your background in tech specifically then? Like what got you excited about technology and programming? Um, what is some of your history there? And what are you working on now? Um, so, uh, I actually took programming in high school. That would be late nineties. Yeah. So, uh, took, uh, went to Boardman. So we had an entire programming course lineup, uh, was able to actually get to be a, uh, what's called a camp counselor at, uh, Camp Fitch. It has, um, a computer programming camp um, there over the summers and my teacher was one of the founders in high school so went there uh started started teaching for uh i think like three or four years uh really enjoyed it um ended up uh not immediately going to university worked local jobs um did tech support, uh, inbound phone support for hotels, a um, little bit of uh, a stagehand for concerts, just a bunch of random, uh, not necessarily tech-related jobs. And eventually decided wanted to go back, um, get my undergraduate in computer science, did that. Um, and uh, then... Uh, got interested in doing research and that's really where I spent a lot of my last 10 plus years basically uh well before industry I've been in industry about four years now you said you're doing research now can you talk a little bit more about that uh yeah so um not so much anymore um but when I was doing research I was doing it on software design patterns and uh, distributed systems did some interesting work on creating uh, Android courses for Coursera actually um, did some interesting research into uh, using blockchain technology uh, circa 2017, I think. So uh, in integrating that into power delivery um grid systems. Pretty uh, interesting, diverse uh, topic area uh, basically was the good thing and led to a little bit of unfocused PhD work, which is not ideal. So um, that's why I uh, got my master's and then just entered industry. And right now I've been more so focusing on just teaching part-time at 
uh, YSU Youngstown State University and um, working full time. Let's stay in the academia side for a little bit longer. Can you tell me, um, you know, what some of the courses you teach at YSU are and um, kind of, I don't know, maybe give a uh, an overview of what each of those courses are? Uh, yeah, it's actually a kind of long list. I So if you have a master's, you can get qualified to teach every undergraduate course. And so the state did that um, for me. I'm able to teach any CIS uh, CS or IT undergraduate course. And so I just filled in when whatever course they needed, basically. I taught um, 1590, which is introductory course to the department. Uh, I taught one online database course. I taught system config and maintenance, which is where you basically like an A-plus certification where you learn the basics of a computer, how to build it, what the parts are, things like that. Uh, human computer interaction that's a uh, interesting course where you learn about a b testing how um, data is actually um, represented in the computer like making sure that high enough contrast values between text and background and lots of nuances that you uh, might know or might not know as a developer or as a uh, lay person, but making it so that you know to look out for these caveats of what not to do in system design and things like that. Um, what else is there? There's, um, oh, so 3701, that is Advanced Object Oriented Programming. Um, that is teaching Java and object-oriented programming concepts. I taught that um, before. Uh, particularly, I made the focus of that, uh, like the motivating factor or like driving rationale of that to be software design patterns. And I think that's an area where we could help improve our undergraduate uh, focus um, learning goals for computer science students. Didn't really change the material at all, but just taught how I was teaching the material so as to teach the design patterns and why these features are in Java and other object-oriented programming languages. That worked out really well. Um, got some really good feedback from that course. Not, uh, I'm sure there's other ones that I've taught, but I think that's about it offhand. That's... Uh... Definitely interesting to hear a little bit more about, um, you know, what is it about, uh, what is it about teaching that keeps you engaged in that and keeps you, uh, keeps you doing that at YSU? Uh, so I mentioned the, uh, Camp Fitch computer camp, um, time I spent there and I really enjoyed that. That was more of a one-on-one, -on -one, um, experience mentoring and teaching, um, content to uh, campers, but um, it made me realize I enjoy teaching. And so uh, now at the university level, you, I'm sure you've heard the uh, slogan, you doing something you love, you don't feel like it's work. It's one of those types of situations. If I didn't have to work, I would just teach in my own spare time. I just enjoy the act of it. And you actually get a lot of positive feedback from the act of teaching. Um, that's one of the things that they'll teach you when you teach to learn how to mentor is you'll learn how the pe other people view the topic. And so you'll realize why certain things are easier or harder for some people to grasp quickly. And it's really, uh, that's true for teaching too. And so you'll, I've gotten questions that have completely and utterly stumped me in class. I'm like, well, I, I don't know. I've never thought of it that way. Let me get back to you. And so the next class I would give them an answer or be like, I don't know yet. I'm still looking into it. And so I think that's a really good experience basically um, to, from like a professional aspect of, like adding humility to it, but um, keeping you intellectually curious and that type of thing. 
So in terms of development, you know, you mentioned Android development and Java in there. Is that what you are primarily focused on these days? Yeah, I um, have transitioned in, I'm, I'm an Android developer professionally, and I have transitioned from Java to Kotlin. Um, Android's made that switch and it's a nice language. It's basically Java plus plus type of thing. It's just a new e evolution of the language features and whatnot. So yeah, I uh, professionally do uh, Android development, um, Kotlin, all of the, if you're familiar with Android development, the modern application development standards, the new packages, things like that. Um, and so, yeah, the uh, my interest uh, ha has always been uh, since I took a course at Vanderbilt in software design patterns and really studying and understanding those and understanding the architecture of software design patterns and how they interact and how they uh, can encapsulate and segregate logic more and more precisely. And that really does help in a um, professional environment because you can quickly and easily make things like a plugin framework or an observer, observer pattern or something along those lines that um, a lot of the uh, built-in libraries make use of. And so you can mirror those type, that type of logic and make your code meld well into uh, projects and things like that. Tell me a little bit more about like what the day-to-day -day is like doing mobile app development. Um, you know, I've got a lot of experience doing backend development. Chris has a lot of experience doing, uh, I guess, front-end and, and sort of into full-stack development. But um, I'd really like to hear more about like what the uh, mobile app development experience is like. Okay. Um, it's similar in a lot of ways to... Uh, backend experience. I have a little bit. I've dabbled a little bit in backend, um, back in like the LAMP WordPress era. But uh, on mobile in particular, we worry a lot about being interrupted. And that's the biggest difference than backend development. So at any time on your phone, you can get these things that uh, none of us actually want called phone calls. And that will immediately close your application. And so on a server, you don't just get phone calls that close your application. Um, that is really the biggest difference. That and the form factor, obviously, those types of more obvious differences. But day-to-day, uh, -day, it varies. Um, some days, uh, some weeks, you'll do nothing but making new interfaces to interact with, like data entry forms or uh, scrolling lists of content people can swipe through or click on, look at data, things like that. Whereas other times you might spend a fair amount of time, as always, as a software developer debugging. Or um, in particular, the uh, CI, CD pipelines for mobile are much more intensive than uh, can be on backend. Uh, depending on what you're doing. So as particularly if you're going through all the different stages of getting ready to prepare for pushing to um, production, which in our case isn't servers that we control. It is a magic black box that uh, Google controls. And that's another big difference that we have to, um, whether it be on Android or iOS, you have to play nice with the, the app store. But yeah, it's it's a lot of it's a little bit of a mix of um, backend. Like I spent a month and a half writing a service in Android, uh, figuring out uh, I hadn't touched a service in probably five to six years. Uh, writing a service to for the project I'm working on now. Uh, that was all like what you would generally more think of as backend development. Whereas other times I'm working on UI, I'm like, oh, I got to make sure that this image is centered in the phone, but not just this phone, but if the phone is wider, or the reactive uh, UI, basically. 
So it's it's a it's a lot of different things basically. There's my, there's a SQL light, so there's database access. You use libraries to do that often, but not always. A lot of different varying day to day differences and challenges. Michael, you've mentioned a lot about design patterns in Android. Is there any um, Android specific design patterns or are there different? Because I've noticed um, my looking at books, there's seems to be platforms, but like JavaScript specific design patterns, Java, since you seem to be the domain expert as far as that goes, it What's, what's your thoughts and experience as far as that goes? Um, there are patterns that are more common in Android. Uh, one in particular, it's older, is the half sync or half sync, half async pattern. That's what the uh, task manager, or, uh, a, I'm sorry, async task used. Um, that's no longer best practice, um, but that's a example of a pattern that heavily 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 was used in android but with um better uh concurrency models and uh, methods and apis coming out and now kotlin with his coroutines that that's not really needed but the patterns themselves often aren't language dependent and that's the point um there are some like uh i think it's uh pimple paradigm or pimple pattern for c++ maybe other languages use that one um, where you have a pointer to a record of the data and you switch that at the very end of updating the data in the object instead of changing values in the object it helps with strong exception safety or exception safety in general but um the point of these patterns is that they are more universal. So uh, the common ones from the software design patterns book from what's called the gang of four, um, I believe it, the book is from 1994. So factory, singleton, builder, bridge, uh, abstract factory. I can't think of, there's some other ones in there. There's, I think there's 20 or so, but these are patterns that if even if you're not familiar with the pattern concept itself, I'm sure you've seen methods called factory builder, um, things like that. In Java, there's a string builder. It uses the builder pattern. So it's these things work their way into patterns and then eventually into uh, core libraries and then eventually into language uh, features, syntax uh, directly. I'm sorry, was there a second part to that question? Or just just patterns in general? No, you kind of answered it. It was more so, is is there anything that was language specific or is there... Oh, yeah. Um, I'm sure there are some, but generally the concepts are most... uh, I mean, most programming languages are Turing complete. So they generally are, you know, as we've evolved in language design, they copy each other. And so a lot of these concepts have transitioned from working their way into Java to start or into PHP. And then, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to put that in Python. And then new library comes out and that's going to become a feature of C++ 11 or the newest version, I think 17 or 21 or whatever it is. So they, the language designers learn from other languages and start incorporating their lessons learned into the newer versions of languages, which is good for us developers and library uh, users. So most of my experience building apps is with React Native, which is basically the most complicated way to build an app or roundabout, not complicated because the, you know, most of the time, if you're building a React Native app, you're, you're, uh, you're a couple layers away from the actual UI and design and system level stuff. But the build tools involved are make it kind of complicated, but it makes it so you can build the same app for, specifically in React Native's case, you can build it for uh, OS native, both Mac and Windows. You can build it for Xbox. You can build it for uh, all Android and iOS devices in one code base. And I've been seeing a lot of startups and, and like smaller companies go towards that 
what kind of situations would you suggest um, is either the point for you to switch off uh, a React Native or Flutter or whatever app, uh, cross-platform app, to a, a native Android and iOS app? And related, what uh, situation would you suggest just going straight to, to doing a native Android and or iOS app? So I like to consider myself a pragmatist as much as possible when it comes to this type of answer. Uh, whatever your developers know is the real honest answer that basically des- decides. Can you hire native developers or can do you already have somebody that knows Xamarin, which is the .NET equivalent of react native i I don't know if it's as far reaching or what what whatnot but do you know develop do you have developers that know flutter well if you already have those that's a resource you should consider and maybe more heavily weight in your decision now uh there are some example or use cases where you're definitely going to want native developers the biggest one is games uh, second biggest one would be AR or VR is my guess um, because you're going to need native acceleration. Uh, third one would be um, if you're going to be using sensors that aren't yet supported in those platforms. So acceler- like high accuracy accelerometers for movement sensing or something like that. I'm guessing, I haven't looked, but I'm guessing React Native can't access the... Uh, Google or Apple watches yet um, fully. So that's another, that's an, one decision. And uh, the biggest one would be uh, form factor. Pen inputs basically aren't as good on interpreted multi-layer things as native code is. Multi-fingered touch sensing, at least it used to be. I, I, I don't know if it's gotten better recently, but um, pinch to zoom was laggy. at at one point um things like that so those are things that like the pinch to zoom pen input or stylus input those can probably be improved if the device manufacturer wants it to be accessible to those type of interfaces they might not want that so uh one issue might be a security feature they might not allow i don't know let's take apple they're probably the biggest example of this they might not allow some like face detection or one of the security features uh without native code so you would need a small chunk of code for the ios for the security functionality then on android you would probably also need another separate small chunk of code for its security safe storage and then that brings us to the biggest issue when you start having these slightly different build variants that have, oh, well, in iOS, the convention is you swipe left or swipe right to go back, but in Android, you swipe up or you have a back button, like a physical or tactile button at the bottom of the phone. These different conventions can be a pain for developers because if a swipe up means something on iOS and a swipe up on Android means something entirely different, well, did you just open the app drawer or did you go back a screen? Like th- that's when you start running into these, well, okay, now we'll have slightly different logic for what way the swipe is. And now you're seeing, well, we're having two branches of code that all point to this main. And as you said, already super complex build system. And then you start getting into the idea of, well, why do we have this complex build system when we basically have two different versions of the app already? And so uh, I definitely think that uh, it can be faster if you already know Flutter or React Native or even Xamarin or any of these other frameworks. If you already know how to set it up and can get that set up quickly, then yeah, you can pump out apps on all the different targets real quick. But um, from what I've uh, seen, it's common that eventually you're just going to have two different code bases that all point to a common central code base that's in that basically translation layer 
framework. That about matches my experience as well. I there was um, what's nice about React Native is that you can modularize the uh, kind of those if statements between different systems. So if you have like a swipe or something, you can at least say this is the swipe manager module or whatever, or swipe excuse me effect or or whatever, and just isolate it to one part. And if you are you know, importing some of those from like NPM or something, then it's not too bad. And they like some third party takes care of a lot of those, those gotchas. But once you start building a, a more extensive app that isn't just putting together Lego bricks, you're right. It does seem that your, you, your code base seems to just split in two and you might as well have two native apps. However, one cool thing about React Native is that it has the ability to do over the air updates, which is kind of controversial because my understanding is that most app stores don't really officially support them because you're not allowed to make substantial changes with over-the-air updates. I, uh, Apple wants you to get the app actually re-reviewed. Um, I don't really know the policy with Google. I know that's a little bit more vague. My understanding was they specifically disallowed it uh, in the terms of service, but I don't know if that's like strictly adhered to. So I think that's about right. Um, and I guess my question is, uh, over the air updates are kind of this awesome feature that allows smaller teams to push updates, you know, daily as opposed to weekly or biweekly or monthly, uh, especially on the, on the iOS store. Is there an equivalent to on native, uh, Android to that? And have you had any experience with that? Or is that like a, a good reason, a quote, good reason to try going with react native or an alternative? Uh, Basically, no. Uh, there are theoretical concepts of um, that you could basically run interpreted code. Uh, think of an emulator with a ROM, basically. But instead of being a video game, it's an app. And then you have that dynamically loaded from the back end. I don't know if any project or any major company has actually gotten that working to scale that would be worth talking about. And something we haven't talked about yet is Jetpack Compose. Um, I don't know if any of you here are familiar with that. I actually have yet to dive into that because, as I said earlier, I'm somewhat of a pragmatist, and it's it's a new technology. It's a new rendering engine for Android uh, UIs, and so it's still a little immature. It's getting better quickly, but some features just aren't yet supported in the newest libraries. A good example is uh, material uh, design, the material library version three doesn't support bottom sheets. It wants you to use material library two's bottom sheets. And it's like, well, then why am I using the new version of the library? Like, so you, it's just, immature still in a lot of ways in my opinion um it's getting really good it's just not there yet and it's had what it calls i think lazy lists uh, we, what we call recycler view on android now where it's the list of things that you just scroll forever basically um, and it does it in a memory efficient way but it can be stuttery or was stuttery for a long time in compose now, why do I bring up Compose? That's because it is a native version of what you're talking about. Compose actually compiles directly to iOS, Android web, um, and other uh, desktop. Uh, so that's a different approach. It's not using like React Native, I assume, uses JavaScript and React framework. Xamarin uses .NET. Uh, this uses... Uh, Kotlin and the new Compose libraries for rendering UI. And so uh, theoretically, you can move your UI uh, components between desktop, iOS, Android, web. Figma has some really nice tools that are allowing, I haven't tested it yet, but Compose is on my list of things to get to over the next six months or so to really learn it hard and get it um, understanding it but uh you can have figma auto generate the compose the ui layer based off the figma designs and so what the de developers do then is 
set the oh this button's green the different states of the button on these if then statements etc 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 but um it's sort of moving towards what you're talking about like a basically a back-end rendered concept but it's more statically built rather than dynamically loaded still maybe eventually they'll move towards fully dynamic over the air type updates but uh, i think they're i think i i agree with their direction right now get it working just compiled and then go see where it goes from there got it that's cool i i'm looking at the compose docs and i don't see anything about being cross-platform i assume that's like the next step i don't know the specifics i think it's jetpack compose I, I think that might be different than Compose. I need to look into it. I think that's what I'm looking at. The URL is j- slash jetpack slash Compose. Um, but yeah, I'll have to check that out. Not that I write Java. I write a lot of JavaScript, but it's... Well, it's Kotlin now, So, but it, the Kotlin syntax is closer, I think, to JavaScript. So, um, But thankfully not prototypical inheritance. Yeah, most people stay away from that in JavaScript for a good reason. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's it's definitely in the the good parts uh, to uh, stay away from it for the most part. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah. So I don't know the specifics of maybe it's. My understanding was is that you can use it now on already those platforms. Maybe there's different build processes. I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> it's one of those. That's really interesting. I'll get to it in a couple of months. Makes sense to me. Uh, so getting off of the mobile development side, um, what other uh, platforms and, uh, I guess, coding paradigms do you have experience with uh, outside of mobile development and Java? Uh, I've done some WordPress, PHP, LAMP type stuff. Linux system administration, um, which is actually a really good skill to have, even if it's just basic Linux system admin, because that was a area that sort of fell upon me during grad school because I had some basics of it. So I could set up. So we worked on a project um, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier. I worked on setting up courses for Coursera for Android development and the build tools in that for building the what were essentially virtual machines that ran your submitted code and tested them they were all in linux uh, commands and so i wrote quite a long bash scripts and setting up these commands uh setting up the emulators copying the emulators onto the vms um, or docker images setting up those docker images uploading them to coursera and getting it so where the assignments could be auto graded which was really nice particularly for mobile that's not a easy feat basically the uh and so the linux system administration skills basic bash understanding that type of stuff has been really useful uh c++ in uh undergraduate and then graduate courses i've worked on but mostly just android and java for the last 10 years or so and now kotlin um so we kind of skipped over that transition from uh, Java into Kotlin, you know, my experience on the JVM side has all been Java or Groovy. Um, you know, can you kind of give me a, a quick sales pitch on what makes Kotlin better than Java, um, both in the generic and specifically for the uh, mobile development use case? Yeah. So an Android, it's unbelievably plainly obvious why. Uh, because we're still using uh, essentially Java 8, I, I guess technically parts of 9 and 11 too somewhat, um, because of the Oracle lawsuit nonsense. Um, and so that moved, that pushed towards Kotlin, basically. Kotlin as a language uh, is really nice. I never really seem to have a lot of issues with null pointer exceptions, but that was because. I was hyper-focused on Java at like a really high level, but uh, most developers apparently did have issues with that. And those were difficult to uh, analyze the code to determine if they would occur. 
So that's one of the biggest issues with Kotlin is it you can determine and say whether or not a variable can be null or not. Um, by default, most are not. And so that's really helpful with preventing null pointer exceptions. It's a statically typed language. My personal favorite feature of it is it has name parameters and parameter defaults. And so if you're coming from a language, I'm thinking uh, Python has those, correct? Uh, Java doesn't. And so named parameters are really helpful for um, smaller Git. Like if you put each variable on a separate line, you can have a, and you can name what this object is, and you can add in a new one, and you can have defaults for the ones that aren't needed. So let's take a simple example, drawing a rectangle. You could have the default be black border with white background or transparent background, whatever your design system states. And then you could just say, height width and corner radius for the corners if there is one if there's not it's defaults to zero and so if you want to add these things you can add them into the method call but you don't have to and you can add them in whatever order you want if you're adding them to a named parameter named parameter is just saying like corner radius equals 5.0 height equals uh, 100 dp width equals 200 dp or whatever the case is and so that gives a lot of as a manager of a project that really reduces um, the number of edits because if you have new parameters to the core library the code calling that library every mess every line calling that library doesn't have to update because you just add something at the end a new variable that can add a new option to that rectangle. So making the background gradient or something, whatever the case may be. But um, that made it, as me as a developer, that's my biggest, what, one of the things I liked the most. Um, that's sort of like a footnote in most people's um, things. Everybody, they all, the big talking point was no nulls. I'm like, I didn't have that issue, but more power to the people who did like whatever, like everybody's going to have their own special thing about that. I'm sure there I'm missing a lot of other things that it can do. Um, but those were the two biggest areas that I thought were of significance. Um, uh, the syntax is different instead of, uh, like the order that you put things, you put the variable name, then it's type after it, but often you don't need to put the type if it's obviously inferable. Little, there's lots and lots of little nice syntax sugar cleanup from Java. Some of it, I actually think, uh, when it comes to lambdas, can make things harder to read if you don't know what you're looking at. But that's my opinion of lambdas in general. So, but yeah, if you design your lambda method names cleanly and you can help reduce and eliminate a lot of that confusion and things like that so i really can't think of much else off the top of my head i'm probably probably am missing in entire giant sections but it's a nice language um the nicest thing is if you have java code in the android studio it's uh i think control shift alt k or something like that it will auto convert the Java to Kotlin for you. And then it'll give you linter recommendations on how to improve the code from the auto conversion. And so that's exactly how I learned Kotlin. I watched like an hour long video on it, then started converting code. It's pretty cool. Pretty interesting to hear. <clears throat> so as uh, from the Java side of things, we'll get uh, a couple of uh, more controversial topics to bring up here. The first one is uh, how do you feel about the uh, pretty regular use of function overloading in Java and Java adjacent languages? So that bring that's uh, ties back to what I was talking about is named parameters and uh, parameter defaults. You don't have to do that in Kotlin. I think it's a like the rectangle example, you would have to include, if you wanted all those different parameters, like 80 different versions of the rectangle 
drawing method. And that's not only is that difficult to maintain as a develop as the person maintaining that code, but it's convoluted. And if you happen to put the float for radius in the wrong place and you meant it to be the you you invert the color and the what you want the uh, corner radius to be, well, then it's just going to render wrong or it might be incompatible or it might just have a syntax error. So you have a lot of issues with that. Kotlin cleans that up by allowing you to write one method and you just set defaults for all the parameters that you don't absolutely require. In, Kot in Java, it's ugly. I mean, that's just the, the truth. Even the Java developers know that. I'm sure even the language devs, I'm sure, know that. I mean, you don't really have a lot of other choices. Uh, or you could use the builder pattern. That's a pretty nice one, actually. Uh, I started using that a lot to where it essentially acts as the same way. Uh, you build a data structure to store all the values, and then you just call methods on that data structure wrapper object um, it's an object but and then it eventually when you run the build command actually just calls a single method with all the parameters in the right order and you just use it that way so that's an, another example of where good design pattern usage can help clean up and simplify code so instead of having the 80 a lot of constructors for a rectangle you could just have the rectangle builder to back off of the uh, the java train a little bit um, you know, we talked about your history in the area, you know, you've mostly lived here. Um, what is it that keeps you in the Youngstown area now? Um, I like the area. Um, I know that's a odd or wrong opinion, but no, um, I do. I, I like the area. I have family here and that's a big draw. The much lower cost of living versus Nashville or... Uh, Chicago or Berkeley, or especially Berkeley, San Francisco. You, it's just Nashville. I'll give you a perfect example. 2011, the apartment I moved into, thousand square foot, two bedroom, five ninety five a month. Pretty good. That's not expensive at all. Now it's fifteen ninety five a month. So that and it's not even in necessarily a great part of Nashville. So if I wanted to live downtown, double, triple, quadruple that price. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the things that uh, kind of keeps a lot of us here is just how much further your money goes in this area compared to the rest of the country. Like, you know, you even said uh, having lived out in the Bay Area for a while, like it is ludicrously expensive out there. The graduate students and student employees of the UC system are on strike right now, and they're asking for I think fifty thousand. And even with that, they will be rent burdened, having to spend over 30 or 40% of their uh, salary on rent. And that just is, that's insane. That, that's insane. So in, in particular, this area, we're an hour and a half away from Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Akron, Canton, um, like Wheeling, Erie, just so many cities and areas if we want to go to two hours or three hours, three, four hours, I don't know. I forget what the speed limit is. No, uh, <laughs> but uh, from uh, Niagara Falls. And so eight and a half to Nashville, like we're not that far from a lot of areas. Um, Nashville's obviously a long one, but I, I drove it a lot. So I happen to know it, but I, I like the central uh, area, um, lower cost of living. The area is nice. I like teaching at YSU. Um, contributing basically to students adjunct faculty don't really make a lot of money so it's basically just form of community service in my opinion but helping students learn and giving them my experiences and helping them grow there's a type of experiences and things that you can do around here that have a big um not just individual impact but a knock-on impact that uh multiplies continuously down the chain of from person to person but mike and i are both drund alumni we had worked there at the same time uh so this is i think the second drund alumni we've had uh, mike helmick uh was on uh, a couple episodes ago 
so it's kind of cool to he- see uh you know the other people who who worked there around the time that I did you know stay in the area um you know moving up in the world those kind of things so uh you know thank you for the, this is not an end to the the podcast but I just wanted to thank you for for jumping on and and I'm enjoying the conversation and and catching up a little bit yeah i honestly that was in the before times before covid so i honestly couldn't remember if you were there during when i was there i think you were like just and <laughs> you just left um after i'd been there a couple months or something yeah it was a um good place to get uh industry experience started and then i've moved on um I don't know. I don't think I've said, but I work as a uh, contractor for Robert Half now, and I am working on a project. Uh, it's pretty interesting, actually. It's uh, called Cosmic Rewards. It'll be coming out shortly, um, but it's a rewarded play application. Um, it rewards you uh, gift certificates and uh, that type of stuff for playing new games. So it's been a very interesting uh, shift from like a content management system background to a more advertising game centric focus. And so it's been useful and I'm a big believer that every job you have helps you eventually in some way, if it's tech or not. So that's awesome. And I, I, believe I saw that you are a, a lead Android developer. Yeah. At Robert Half, right? That's that's awesome. Uh people uh ex drun employees moving up in the world. That's awesome to see and staying local, you know, not no not bashing people who who left that, you know, everyone has their reasons, but it's nice to keep the talent local. Um are you teaching at YSU this semester? No, I haven't uh been I haven't taught in two or three semesters. Um uh, they needed to make room for this new uh, new guy to teach some web class. No, um, I'm just teasing that uh, Joe's you're teaching first time this semester, correct? Yes. 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 Okay. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, I'm basically just I fill in the slot whenever they need. It takes a lot of time to teach a course. And so I'm glad to do it and I love doing it. But I've uh, been focusing on in the uh new job transitioning things like that so i haven't i haven't taught i think since last spring or no last fall actually last fall um and we were still remote uh then and so i haven't been in person in quite a while we have a a question we would really like to ask everyone is um you know what is your favorite local restaurant um you know, if you had to recommend a restaurant in the area to someone, what, what's the one you'd pick? So I'm going to cheat and I'm going to say a place that isn't open anymore because it's still my favorite and that's a problem. But it was the Boulevard Tavern in Youngstown. Um, anybody who I think four to five generations of my family there at once. So it had been around a while. It was an institution, basically. I haven't yet found another good uh, restaurant I think is at the same level. I I need to start coming back and trying some of these newer restaurants that I really did like Cafe 422 there in Boardman. Yeah, I really haven't ate out a lot at different restaurants since I've came back. So a lot of of places have closed and changed. And so that's one of my goals here in the short term is to try those different types of places but i would say maybe mvr um if you're downtown or cafe 422 if you're in boardman i know they have another location i think in niles is that where they are it's in niles on 422 at north road oh, okay well yeah they're pretty good um no complaints at all for me i since you seem to um be quite the expert on object-oriented programming as someone who isn't as familiar with, I guess, the classical OOP as I am, unfortunately, with prototypical inheritance. Um, what's uh, Could you um, elaborate 
I don't know if you know the differences, but um, if so, could you kind of like elaborate on that? Because that's something that I'm curious about because I've most of my or almost all of my experience minus when I was in college has been with prototypical inheritance and it is not fun, but it's what I live with. Honestly, not as much. Uh, so I don't claim to be an expert in that at all because I've met the people who literally wrote the books on design patterns. Like my PhD advisor is one of the co-authors of the pattern oriented software architecture books. Uh, so I don't claim to be an expert by any means. Um, I do enjoy it. And I think it's one of those areas you can always learn more. Prototyp my understanding of prototypical is heavily weighted from a project that I tried to use called WebGME. It's a generally general modeling environment, hence GME, where you would write meta languages to define languages. And I had horrible trouble with the prototypical inheritance. I would always edit the base class instance. I'm not sure if that's even the right term and not like the in like a subclass instance. And so I grew to dislike prototypical inheritance a lot from that experience. I'll explain classical OOP is you have a definition of an object. That's your class definition, uh, at least in Java. So you have uh, a cow class, and then you have different instances of the cow or cow class. So you have, if you had a dairy farm, you would have like 20 different cows. And if you change a variable in the, each one of those cows, like have they been milked today? It doesn't change the definition at all. You, you can't change the class definition of a cow. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I guess there seems to be, I, I, from that definition, I'm, I'm thinking the biggest difference from my understanding is probably that, well, <laughs> classes are, I'm guessing the, the word would be immutable. Um, whereas prototypical inheritance, that's not the case. And everything's an object not classes or not classes are actually objects yeah basically um there's nuance there that that's not technically right i think but i think that's a good way of thinking about it when first approaching it particularly depending on what language you're in i think uh, other language i'm not sure how python does it and some other languages might do it differently but a class is not a, an object and a class are different in a lot of languages Whereas in JavaScript, I think they're the same. Like you, you don't have a class. You just have a instance, a parent instance. Is that the right way of thinking of it? I, I believe that's correct. Joe's more experienced than I am, but I believe that's correct. Correct me if I'm wrong. JavaScript does have a class syntax now. Is like sort of, my understanding is it's kind of syntactic sugar, not for prototypical inheritance but for doing the uh doing uh class-like things like more outside of the prototype like doing it more with object-based inheritance um so instead of doing the prototype prototypical based inheritance where you uh you know create a instance of a of an object that's a prototype and then like creating new versions of that you can also just create an object that has certain methods and uh, functions and create instances of that, which is sort of the same thing, but also different and has different syntaxes. Um, and you get different this-esque things. I I have not played with prototypical inheritance that much. I'm very lucky to have started JavaScript in the age where uh, the library author authors in the situations in which prototypical inheritance is, you know, hundred percent required to get something working well. Uh, they, they have taken care of that and it is abstracted away from me. And most of my work is within this either, either class or functional uh, paradigm and don't actually touch the um, prototypical inheritance. And I think, I don't want to generalize, but a lot of people in the React world, I think that's the case uh, for better or worse. 
Um, I know when I reread uh, the good part, JavaScript, the good parts, um, you know, there was a lot of prototypical inheritance talked about. And it uh, the first time I've read it, I was like, this makes no sense. And when I read it most recently, I was like, oh, wow, that explains a lot of like the the background of how jQuery kind of worked and how, how other tools kind of came into being. Um, so I'm sure that there are times in my everyday life where I should be using prototypical inheritance that I am not. Um, but there's a handful of reasons why people don't. And just people, I, I think the even the average JavaScript developers, um, at least probably from my age group and, and maybe a little bit above or below, just isn't really familiar with that system because it's so it's either abstracted away or um, isn't. It, 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 there's ways to get around that now because there is a, a class-based syntax in JavaScript. Um, yeah, that's my rant. Yeah, um, I looked it up to make sure. <clears throat> a class is essentially just a function and a function is an object. So it's all objects. <laughs> it definitely is it's it's interesting because it prototypical inheritance is almost like this layer like above or or below like a a underlying layer that you can use instead of of an object uh, well it is an object but it's like a your methods will fall back to the prototype if it's missing um so there's ways you can do all kind of fancy inheritance but you can also do those things in the object world as well as the class world in javascript and the function world which is also an object so um yeah it's it's convoluted and a little weird and i i think that the you know certain communities of javascript developers have standardized on different syntaxes that are uh you know more readable in certain situations like the the angular world is very class-based and uh you know looks more like a, a java or c sharp uh environment then the react community has kind of moved off of a a, a uh, class-based syntax and more into a functional syntax which somebody who's a functional purist would be like that's not functional but you know for the sake of everything that is class-based it is is way more functional um, with react hooks and, and those kind of things because uh, they're stateful but also functional um I, again i i'm kind of just ranting but it is uh, it's very weird. And having a deep understanding, I think, of all of these systems, at least in the JavaScript world, is um, that's a skill that I don't have. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't JavaScript still single-threaded? Yes, but there it, it does have an event loop, though, which makes it uh, for like the sake of... If you're coming from like Python, which is also single-threaded, but you can make multiple threads or workers or, or whatever, someone can correct me on which is which... Um, it is different because my understanding is most events in Python are blocking versus events in JavaScript are normally async and part of the event loop. So you get away with a little bit more. Um, but you can uh, spin up multiple workers with web workers to make it, depending on your definition, multi-threaded, multi-whatever. you know, whatever. Um, And then it can post messages back to the main thread, uh, which I actually played with uh, mildly recently, uh, which was interesting. Uh, we had a big calculation at work that we needed to do off the main thread. Um, that was fun. Uh, but yes, for its JavaScript is single threaded, but there is an event loop that makes it so it doesn't have as many of the drawbacks to something being strictly single threaded. I have one last comment to make as about why I asked about, um, prototype typal inheritance because recently um, at work I had to extend a Firebase mock library and build on to that because it had functionality we wanted but not everything and I got all too familiar with a similar issue that you mentioned Michael about how um, <laughs> the I was trying to extend the the base class, but then it was overriding my class. And I spent probably two weeks trying to figure out why my code wasn't running and it was being overridden after it got ran and went on a two-week rabbit hole about proto uh, 
interprototypal inheritance. And yeah, it was interesting, not fun. <laughs> I think it's one of those uh, concepts you just have to get or not. And, to, and then until you get it, it doesn't quite make sense. Like Joe said earlier, none of this makes sense. And then you you have enough of the underlying or surrounding knowledge. And then, oh, now this all makes sense. And I never reached that point. So <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I, I know this is broken and I don't know why. And I'm just not going to deal with this because <laughs> it was not something i was actually using for work or anything i was just learning it and i'm like yeah this is this is not what i uh, i'll spend my time on something else right now does anyone else have any further questions for michael no no i'm good we do have one event happening this coming month which we need to cover code youngstown's winter mixer is happening on tuesday december 13th the event is being hosted by Oh Wow, located at 15 Central Square in Youngstown, and is being sponsored by HD Davis CPAs. And with that, that is all for this episode of the Code Youngstown podcast. We want to thank Michael Walker for joining us today, and we would also like to thank you, our listeners. We'll be back with another episode next month. In the meantime, join the community on our Slack through slack.codeyoungstown.com. And be sure to like, subscribe, and rate our podcast on your listening platform of choice.